You are listening to the History Respawn Podcast. The HR Podcast is made possible by support from our listeners. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting our work by going to our Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. That's www.patreon.com forward slash history respond. Hi everyone, this is the History Respawn Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode is a rebroadcast of our YouTube episode on Papers, Please, a border security game set in a fictionalized Eastern Bloc country during the Cold War. This episode originally appeared on YouTube on November 3rd, 2014. Zach Dolishal and I discussed the Cold War in Eastern Europe, as well as the history of secret police and government surveillance. I hope you enjoy the episode, and happy Thanksgiving. Hi everyone, welcome to the show. I'm joined today by our historical expert, Dr. Zach Dolishaw, lecturer at Sam Houston State. Welcome, Zach. Thanks for having me, Bob. So today we're going to be talking about game by Lucas Pope called Papers, Please. Uh, and in this game, you play a customs agent working for a Eastern European communist state in 1982. And as this customs agent, you are required to clear individuals coming into your country. And this country is communist state. It's worried about potential dissidents coming into the country. It's worried about potential terrorists. It's worried about uh, criminals. So as the customs agent, you're placed in charge of making sure that these uh, terrible individuals don't get into the country. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you might be morbidly obligated to attempt to help these individuals because they have a, a particular crisis. They could be threatened with death. Uh, and they might also be trying to foment a rebellion in your country, which you could be supporting. But if you are supporting those individuals, then there's a good chance that you could uh, lose pay uh, as a result of, uh, you know, neglecting your uh, job duties, which could lead to your family uh, being dispossessed or maybe losing out on food or medicine. So uh, the game's got a lot of interesting things going on uh, and a lot of commentary, not just about communism in the 1980s, but also uh, about uh, bureaucracy and uh, governmentality. Uh, so uh, I guess my first question for you, Zach, is, you know, having looked at the game, having watched the game footage, you know, how well does this game reflect life in an Eastern Bloc country during the 1980s? Well, good question. And of course, one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about the Eastern Bloc that I think is popularly misunderstood is that it was a very diverse place. So it depends on where we're looking. Um, the bleakness of Albania in the 1980s is hard to overstate. Um, however, uh, other, other places would have been a little more colorful, if you like. Uh, I think what this game is kind of hinting at is East Germany, West Germany, because it seems like you know there are two East-West sides. 
And if we're talking about East Germany and, say, um, East Central Europe, uh, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, uh, the, the so-called uh, Visegrad countries, the goulash countries, if you will, then it's, it's complicated. It's not all that bleak uh, for certain people, at least, and certain things, particularly in 1982. 1982 is actually a really nice place for this game to position itself. Um, into because the early 80s was when the Eastern Bloc economies came crashing down. Um, the What happened was in the 60s and 70s, these economies were able to kind of create this consumer golden age through taking on massive debt. And this debt was taken from the West, mostly. When the 1970 economic crisis hit the global markets, um, you know, with the rising cost of oil and oil embargo and all the rest. The Western creditors sort of dried up. Um, they sort of completely went away there during uh, particularly the early 80s for the Eastern Bloc countries. And so with this line of credit cut and payments uh, increasingly sort of called for, you know, by these creditors, the economy sort of grinds to a halt, so to speak. Um, particularly in places like Romania, where almost within a year, shelves uh, of, of uh, grocery stores empty. And you have people, you know, the communist apparatchiks, the kind of voices, you know, the, the propaganda voices of the, of the Communist Party of, of Romania, telling people that they need to get rid of their vacuum cleaners, get rid of their refrigerators, all of these sort of uh, devices that symbolized modernity for, for both West and East uh, in, in many ways. Uh, sort of these symbols of modernity in everyday life were suddenly uh, the people were being called on to abandon in the 80s. That's sort of how bad it got. So, yeah, the 80s were, were not a great period of time uh, in, in the East Bloc, and um, there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, the, this is a kind of a, a period where the phrase society of scarcity mm. um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you get a good sense of that scarcity uh, with your player character and his family. You know, you are working as the customs agent uh, for this communist state, uh, but you are not just responsible for yourself, you're responsible for uh, your wife, your son, uh, and then also you've got a few members of your extended family all living within the same apartment, and you are the only breadwinner. And mm -hmm. so whatever money you make as a customs agent, which again is dependent on how well you do your job, uh, has to go to pay for uh, food has to pay for heating, and then also has to pay occasionally for medicine uh, from your family. And uh, the medicine issue can become really critical because while you are working your job, you could make mistakes, you could be penalized, which means you'll have less money to pay for food or even heating. So you might have weeks where you go without heating, for instance. Uh, but then without heating, uh, you are putting mm. your family members at risk for getting sick. Uh, and if they get too sick, uh, they will die. Uh, and I had several playthroughs of this game where I lost uh, my son, I lost uh, my uncle, and then eventually my wife. Uh, and then, of course, the game stops. The game stops at that point because uh, oh, no. you are uh, supposed to be a productive member of society with a large family. And if you're not living up to those cultural sets, then the, uh, the state will come in and send you to a labor camp. 
uh, in order to punish you for not living up to living up to society's expectations. So, I mean, you definitely do get a sense of, you know, how pinched the economies were uh, mm. in Eastern Europe during this time period. That ties in with how people live. The majority of people, particularly in urban settings, would live in these large, and still do, um, shouldn't say past tense, uh, very large apartment blocks um, that were built uh, with a kind of communal sense in mind, um, and as well as a kind of uh, denial of privacy, yeah. uh, so that the, the walls were very thin, and you could hear your neighbors speaking in a normal volume. You, you could overhear them. Partly that was due to shortage of materials, partly by design. Obviously, again, it really depends on where we are and what apartment block we're talking about. But one thing that I would probably say that didn't didn't happen in the Eastern Bloc was a kind of neg- medical neglect. Mm. Medicine in the Eastern Bloc was quite good. Um, it, it was in some ways better than the West, particularly for people without means. You, you had a very, very high doctor-to-citizen ratio. So the game might get that, that part wrong a little bit in terms of the necessity to buy medicine in the Eastern Bloc. You'd mentioned living in close proximity with your neighbors. One of the things that can happen to you in this game is that if you are becoming involved uh, in the rebellion uh, against this communist state, if you are accepting bribes uh, from individuals that come through the customs house, uh, that if you begin to spend that money freely, that you can actually be reported on by your neighbors and sent to a labor camp. Uh, so, you know, how common was this in a communist state to have reporting by your neighbors, maybe even family members, on your uh, activities, which could be a danger to the state? Well, in that, it seems like the game hit it right on the head. With the establishment of the Soviet Union, pretty quickly uh, in the 1920s, the NKVD, uh, the the kind of secret uh, police, became very, very uh, interested in getting unofficial collaborators to report on their neighbors. And the, these collaborators could be children, and were and children were encouraged to denounce their parents if their parents were, you know, spouting unfriendly uh, ideologies at at home. Even um, and so that kind of of mentality really filtered into all of the Soviet-style communist countries of the Eastern Bloc. Mm. Inch is a very interesting development of this uh, internal uh, informant network uh, from a kind of primitive, in some ways, uh, just filling out a card, putting it in the the local secret police mailbox with a, a name and what they did and these people would show up at the at the apartment uh in, in arrest the person in many cases take them to you know various locations and, and particularly after world war ii from about 48 to 53 period uh, that historians refer to as high stalinism those arrests were were in the hundreds of thousands throughout the Eastern wow. Bloc, and they were the the interrogations were often brutal. Uh, the techniques were brutal. So, you you know you're breaking people's fingers and and shocking them uh, to get them to confess to a, a, oftentimes outlandish, almost paranoid 
uh, conspiracies. Right. And these interrogations would occur on the basis of simply one person's report, or would it have to be based off of uh, more than just like a, an index card claiming that somebody was involved in you know, at these activities? It's both. There are uh, stories of people uh, being rounded up by the very... So in Czechoslovakia, for example... Uh, if you were reported just by one person in an index card, you, you, your file would begin. But if that, that report kind of linked with a list of names, and in high Stalinism, that list of names had a lot to do with your past. So what kind of politics did you have before? Were you a public figure for the, mm. the sort of, you know, in their eyes, bourgeois regime? Uh, if it kind of it matched, then all you needed was one informant, one report, uh, and you, you chances. Uh, and and there are many instances of of that happening. But there are other you know uh, other uh, instances of very long cases uh, that the police spent lots of time. Um, in fact, the one of the developments is a uh, of the, the sort of informant system is a sophistication over time. And by the time we get to the 1980s, it's really remarkable uh, what the state, uh, particularly in East Germany, in Czechoslovakia, in uh, Poland, and the Soviet Union primarily are able to accomplish without torture. Um, without mass arrests, without mass executions. And they're able to do that with a very large paid informant network. So in Czechoslovakia, a country of a population of about 16 million, there were 75,000 paid informants um, in the 1980s. There were probably, in, in the decade of the 1980s, and we say probably because there's not a hard number here, uh, but probably 250,000 people who came forward and worked with the STB, the secret police there, in a kind of unpaid uh, fashion. Uh, they, they, maybe they wanted an apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they wanted you know, some, some kind of material benefit from their denunciation. But... They so and what the secret police would do then uh, would not be the kind of you arrest somebody and you you know you crack skulls and you get them to confess and then you send them to a mine where they'll you know probably die shortly thereafter. No, it got much more sophisticated and I I would uh, not hesitate to use the word modern right in the sense that dissent was marginalized very effectively so one everyone became very afraid of their neighbors with this massive unknown informant system that people knew about but you didn't really know who was an informant so you became highly guarded in a system like this and people you know uh, were were very reluctant to speak about any anything in public mm. so you public spaces became very quiet uh, that, and that's a legacy we still see today yeah so uh yeah i mean you mentioned you know kind of these states trying to avoid uh using physical punishment but at least you know for the player character in the game if they uh are you know being involved in these uh you know revolutionary groups or uh, not doing their job very well or not being able to pay for the health of their family, they could eventually be sent to a forced labor camp uh, and then have their family relocated uh, to a rural area. So you're saying that these kinds of punishment were not that common 
in the Eastern Bloc? Not in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, if yeah, if you go back to the 1950s and in the brutal phase, very much so. There, the the work camps were were very brutal. The Yakimov mine in Czechoslovakia, for example, was a kind of slave labor camp that worked its uh, political prisoners to death. Estimates range from 30 to 50,000 people died in Yakimov mine. So yeah, there was a brutal face, but in the 1980s, uh, prisons were very much used for political prisoners, I mean, for political dissenters, but they were not nearly as brutal. The, the end result rarely was you were going to be worked to death. In the Eastern Bloc, uh, in the Soviet Union and in Albania, the, the, these are kind of different uh, contexts and cases. But um, but yeah, so the Eastern Bloc, uh, the prison system modernized uh, very similarly to how the prison system in the West modernized. Right. And, uh, you know, definitely this uh, surveillance state it, uh, places an emphasis on using information to establish repression. You see the same thing in the British Empire, where British police mm. feel that the use of force is actually a failure on their part, that they should have never gotten into the position where they had to fire because they could have been able to use information networks to imprison those people beforehand. And it sounds like it's pretty similar with uh, Eastern Europe at this time. It, it really is. They, For a variety of reasons, the Communist parties in power realized that brutal repression um, alienated uh, the 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 citizens and and they so they began to think about ways again to marginalize dissent to to push dissenters into sort of these private corners of their states um into the forest service for example was a big way to uh, get rid of dissenters in the urban areas was, okay now now you Okay, you you wrote a pamphlet. Now you're going to go work as a forest ranger in some remote district. This reminds me of the saying, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it. You know. <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect analogy in many ways. Um, that's what happened to Alexander Dubček, who is a much more high-profile figure here, um, the leader of the the kind of internal. Uh, revolution, the socialist socialism with the human face experiment in 1968 in Czechoslovakia. Um, rather than prison, imprisoning him and you know killing him, which is what would have happened in the early 50s, uh, more than likely, they sent him to a forest uh, in Slovakia. Just said that you know manage this forest uh, for us, uh, former premier. So yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> And no one really heard from him until 1989. So, uh, yeah. so uh, you know, this game has you playing as a uh, custom agent uh, in a uh, border crossing in uh, this Eastern European country. But, you know, how common was it for people within the Eastern Bloc uh, to actually go to different countries, uh, even uh, to other countries within the Eastern Bloc? Well, that is a great question. And, and again, it very much depends on where you are in the Eastern Bloc. So, for example, the former Yugoslavia had uh, quite open uh, uh, travel uh, policies, and there was a, a great deal of movement uh, between Yugoslavia in the West and other Eastern Bloc countries. 
the Soviet Union, on the other hand, had much more restrictive uh, travel restrictions on its on its populace, and you kind of had to prove yourself worthy in some ways. Really, what you had to have were the right connections to the to communist functionaries to travel abroad right. and to travel even within the Eastern Bloc. With East Germany, before 1961, before the wall goes up, uh, hundreds of thousands of East Germans are going to the West. Uh, many of them, most of them, for good, uh, they're immigrating. Uh, but thousands more, and it's unclear how many thousands, because the borders were quite porous, were coming back. And so there was a real kind of back and forth between uh, between the two the two Germanys within the Eastern Bloc. Travel it, it, again, it kind of depends on the time period. But in the 1980s, travel is fairly easy to do within Eastern Bloc Warsaw Pact countries. Mm-hmm. Um, you obviously you need you need a visa. Um, you need that visa has to be approved by the the state um, for uh, travel abroad. But um, at this point, it, it is it is not very difficult. It's about as difficult as going from France to West Germany um, for most people. Again, there's a kind of blacklist of people with the wrong political background. Sure. And, and for those people, um, it, their travel anywhere becomes a, a major issue. Right. Uh, but it's very interesting to note, you know, we think of the Berlin Wall as this, you know, monolithic block between East and West. And, and, uh, and for, for a couple years, at least, after, it's, uh, after it was built, it's like that. However, by the time we get to the 1980s, uh, East Germany is using the crossing into the West and back over into the East for its economic advantage. Um, And it's Mm -hmm. also allowing lots of people uh, to go and visit the West. Uh, For example, in 1987, 1.3 million visas are allowed for trips to the West. Hmm. Um, and the mines, the 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 mines that are spit that are kind of put all around the wall on the eastern side are removed. So there there is a, a real flow of people um, back and forth, but of course it has to go through the all the official channels, and those official channels increasingly in the 1980s want money. Um, that it becomes a money making enterprise. Mm. So one of the one of the ways they the East German government makes money is through uh, currency. So if you're coming from the West into the East, it, it makes you change your money, at least a portion of, of your money, at a one-to-one ratio for the <laughs> West German mark and the East German mark, which was absolutely you know, ridiculous. ridiculous. You're basically yeah. Getting, yeah, you're getting robbed. Um, so there is, there is a lot of flow back and forth. Um, but at the same time, uh, the border is uh, a militarized zone, and the all through the the border of Warsaw Pact countries with the West, there is a um, a really impressive and fairly terrifying border checkpoint system of guard towers and dogs and barbed wire that it are, it exists to hold the citizens of the Warsaw Pact countries in. Yeah. Um, and, and that's real, uh, very much real. And, and trying to get through that 
can be a, a deadly proposition. Mm. So, yeah, uh, you know, one of the goals for the game, uh, at least eventually, uh, becomes uh, you trying to get you and your family members uh, to the West uh, illegally uh, using uh, fake papers. And, you know, I mean, how common was it for people in the Eastern Bloc to try to escape to the West? And oh, did they even have a desire uh, to go to the West? Because, I mean, it seems like what you're saying with uh, the stations uh, between East and uh, West Germany is that some of those people wanted to return home to East Germany, even though it was still a communist state. That's right. Um, absolutely, Bob. And the, I mean, any any time you're you're really looking at, at such a a broad and um, diverse group of states and and time, you're going to have people that are running against the current, so to speak. And, and mm-hmm. in this case, people that uh, want, are going to go west, but with the intention of returning east and do so. I think though. It's important to remember why the wall is built. And the wall is built because East Germany is is just losing all of its citizens in the late 1950s. And I, I'm not saying that as a hyperbole. Um, hundreds of thousands of East Germans every year from about 1953 to 1961. 1953, there's a kind of an East German rising that is brutally suppressed. Um, after that, the wave after wave of immigrants are leaving East Germany. Schools are being left uh, just sort of untended because all of the teachers in the entire school have fled to the West. Hmm. Um, there is a strong desire to get to the West, particularly by for East Germans. And I think that's because East Germany has this unique position in that it has to... It has to face a a cousin um, and ha- on its own terms, whereas all the other Eastern Bloc states don't have to face uh, a, a kind of mirrored self. You you have a state where your language is spoken, your culture is fairly similar, um, and people are they're they're able to choose from seventy different kinds of shampoo, at least in by the nineteen sixties. So, so there's there's a huge push um, of immigrants to go to West Germany, and there's a trickle of people trying to, you know, to, to escape the wall, to to get over the wall, all throughout the period of its existence. But in terms of mass immigration, it doesn't happen as much as you would think it would. In 1968, when Czechoslovakia is invaded by Warsaw Pact countries led by the Soviet Union, there is a, a wave of immigration. In 1956, when Hungary is, uh, the there's a sort of spontaneous revolution in Hungary, it's brutally repressed, there's a wave of immigration, so a quarter of a million people uh, flee. Um, but outside of these sort of really spectacular moments of repression, uh, you don't mm-hmm. have, uh, you don't see as great, of, uh, of of a wave of immigration, and partly that's because of the effectiveness of the state in restricting travel uh, west, as well as the kind of consumer golden age of the '60s and '70s. Things get better in the Eastern Bloc for in in everyday life. So, Zach, uh, the game depicts a violent attempt to overthrow 
a communist state. Uh, there's a, a terrorist organization called the Order of the Isaac Star, which is uh, responsible for bombing attempts in the city that you're working in. Uh, and you as the player character can attempt to you know, ferment this revolution by uh, helping their agents uh, get past the customs house, get past the border crossing. And, you know, even though you've got this, uh, the game depicting a violent attempt to overthrow a communist state, it seemed like most of the Eastern Bloc countries, uh, when they were eventually overthrown, most of them were overthrown peacefully. So, so how common were violent resistance movements in Eastern Bloc countries, and why were these types of revolts uh, not more successful? Well, that, that's a, a very good question and a big question. There were a series of uh, revolts. Um, in the 50s and, and 60s from within the Eastern Bloc countries that were sort of all repressed through military force. You have 53 in East Germany and Poland. You have 56, the Hungarian uprising. And then you have 68 uh, in Czechoslovakia. All of them put down really with the so by the Soviet army. So there is an understanding and a kind of hopelessness in some ways after 68, um, particularly that we, there, what can you do? Um, there is a much more powerful state who has military installations all around and in your country. That's clearly shown that it will use that military might if you go too far against its uh, its dictums. So there there is a, a real retreat um, from public dissent after 68, and, and that's a, a major reason. Another major reason why you don't see more kind of violent actions, uh, it's by, one, the hopelessness, but two, you know, we talked about the, the security state, the surveillance network. That's very effective. Um, that's very effective at... at repressing dissent. And three, there is a kind of trade-off that the communist authorities begin to make after 68. They realize that people are dissatisfied and and in, and what they want to do is offer them kind of material comfort in exchange for uh, political complacency. And a kind of deal with the people after 68 is met where the, the state tries to give them really cheap stuffs um, for order and complacence. Um, Václav Havel, the, the great dissident who, uh, playwright who would later become president of uh, Czechoslovakia and then the Czech Republic, he compared this era after the 1970s, kind of normalization, he compared it with the West, and he found really little difference between like the over-consumerism of the West and the situation in the East. In other words, people were kind of bought off by stuff. And as they're being bought off with stuff, political dissent decreases. There, there are still these groups that are, that are active, but, but, but again, with the surveillance state and, and kind of modern policing techniques, they're marginalized, um, and they're not allowed a kind of martyr uh, persona um, in their persecution, hmm. um, and everyday life becomes a little more full with material items. And then there's the the kind of big brother thing, where if you go too far, the Soviet Union is going to send 
tanks into your town and and then what? What do you and and, and what do you do? So I think all of those things uh, lead to a, a kind of calm. That being said, there are attacks um, on border guards, particularly in East Berlin, um, right? From escapes in armored buses to bombs being planted on the wall, from uh, guard East German guards being bludgeoned to death. I mean, all of this happens on the wall. It. it it's a uh, it it can be and ha- and was a violent place at times and people did attack it um, uh, physically attack it um, but not in mass I guess not until 1989. So uh, you know I mean we've talked about the kind of economic struggles that uh, these Eastern Bloc countries were going through, uh, particularly during the early 1980s when this game was set. But I mean, was it obvious at the time? Uh, in the early 80s, that communism, that the Eastern Bloc was on the verge of collapse? No. I think in 1982, um, you would be hard-pressed to find uh, anyone in the world, really, any theorist in the West or East that predicted uh, the Soviet collapse some seven years later in that short amount of time. But there were signs. There were real signs of a of a system that had fundamental sort of structural problems. Um, and what those, those problems were was that in the 50s and 60s, investment went into heavy industry in the Eastern Bloc. That was kind of the, the you know, the order from on high. Uh, Moscow, uh, communism, uh, wanted heavy industry to create the, um, a big proletarian uh, class, a sort of working worker class, right, and to industrialize uh, a region that really was, was under-industrialized before World War II. So by the 1980s, this investment in heavy industry had created a kind of rust belt situation where it could no longer compete with the global markets, um, much like the Rust Belt of the United States. And so, and so as it couldn't compete, um, where what was the next thing to do? And here there was a real, uh, we could say, lack of imagination uh, in both the political and private sector. And, and that, you could say, is because of the, the system itself. Um, it rewarded... Um, kind of it, the system rewarded obedience, it rewarded loyalty, it did not reward imagination. Um, and as it doesn't reward imagination, the, there was this kind of lumbering mentality where yeah. they could see that there, there, the, these heavy industries that they had built up um, with with great uh, effort and speed were no longer competitive on a global market, but they couldn't see how to move past that. Many countries just kept kind of kept going. And so they would do things like, well, like try to get money uh, from the West. They Mm -hmm. would start letting people in from the West uh, to, to essentially buy things uh, with their currency. And they would start letting workers go to the West to then send money back home in foreign currency, uh, they called it hard currency. And so, there, you know, these are real problems. When you obviously, when you have people 
uh, when you have a state that's encouraging its citizens to go abroad and encouraging uh, people from abroad to come and not at this point um, and to spend its their their foreign currency on state monopolized stores uh, because you don't you know you just don't have uh, capital and your currency on the global market has become so weak. Uh, there's there's a real economic problem and and people saw that but. No one predicted the collapse because largely uh, of the power of the Soviet military and, and the, the effectiveness of the secret police in these societies. Uh, who, who could predict that such a, such a massive surveillance network would just sort of right. collapse uh, overnight? And, and so, yeah, no, I, I would say very firmly, no, no one knew. No one could see the writing on the wall well, so got a final question here, and you know this game, uh, it revels in forcing the player to engage with kind of uh, pedantic bureaucratic minutia. You know, you're sitting there and you're uh, checking documents, you're checking names against uh, fingerprint records, you're checking dates for documents, you're making sure that the person's vaccination records are up to date, uh, you check their physical appearance. All of these things, uh, you know, this is this is not a game where you know you're just running around shooting people, right? This is a game where you're having to deal with paperwork, and you know, what what sort of lessons do you think uh, students, history students in particular, can draw from this type of game where you're forced to deal with this kind of bureaucratic minutia? Well, I think in that way, it's a very unusual game, isn't it? And the the lesson could be, and and is really. Uh, quite profound. Uh, I, I I could really see a game like this working with a class on the history of the 20th century world, perhaps not just uh, you know Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because one of the fundamental projects of the 20th century is to create legible citizens that the state has a clear record of. Yes. Um, the 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 kind of uh, project of, of a you know visa uh, or a passport is is just a part of a much larger um, uh, state project to and, and you know I guess it starts with the censuses but I mean you could say you could, you could say it starts there and and we see a slow build up and then in the 20th century an explosion of the documents required to become and be a citizen and the databases kept um, by states on its citizens so that you can be read mm-hmm. by the state and managed because of that. Um, I, I read an article the other day, um, and it was about an East German uh, Stasi agent mm-hmm. who was talking about what the NSA um, has uh, accumulated uh, all the information the NSA has accumulated after the Patriot Act. And he uh, roughly said, this would have been amazing had we had this technology in my time. So I think that kind of, the mentality of the of the state, the governmentality, if you will, right, is to collect as much information on the individual citizen as it can, to keep a database of that to keep track of you. Why do that? Uh, that I mean, that's a, that's a, a, a big question, right? Uh, what, so what's the, 
what's the purpose and why do we continue to build on that? I mean, because in many ways, East Germany was the pinnacle of, of high modernism, meaning uh, this project to use uh, rationality, scientific solutions to govern people. You, you, you have uh, a kind of fully legible and read uh, citizenry. That has now been far surpassed by what, what um, we have done uh, in the 2000s. Uh, why? So why? Why are we? Where are we going? And why are we progressing this way? Um, I think are really interesting questions that hopefully this game would bring up for its players um, and its audience. Uh, ultimately, uh, you you know I I don't know I don't maybe I don't want to answer the question. <laughs> I want to I want to leave it hanging. The NSA could be watching. Yeah. The NSA could <laughs> definitely at least creates a database, yeah. right? It doesn't even need to watch, yeah. right? It just needs to – you need to know that it's there, yeah. I think, is the point, yeah. perhaps, of it. Yeah, and do um, we necessarily need to be, uh, you know, having a Stasi, ex-Stasi agents giving us compliments on our security state? You know, that's <laughs> that's not something you want to put on the bulletin board, I don't think, even if you are the NSA. <laughs> No, it's not. But but I think it, it really connects to the commonality of modern of the modern state. That the the, the Eastern Bloc, um, though it was a one party state and what and should be looked at on its own terms, had striking numbers of similarities with the West, Western states, right. in its overall goal of creating legible citizens um, and using that information and a, a very, very massive surveillance network to marginalize dissent. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that that hopefully is something that, that this game gets you to think about. Um, anyway, you certainly got me thinking about <laughs> Well, uh, on that note, I think that's going to do it for us here at History Respond. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Zach Dalshaw for... Uh, joining us on this episode, uh, and uh, please tune in for more episodes. 